Hi, and welcome to another episode of Seek Sustainable Japan podcast. In this episode, I have the chance to talk with Skylar Alexandra Cole, who came from a very interesting background in the US,、uh, studied at Stanford. She was a cheerleader, and she's been working in Japan as a VC, venture capitalist, who gives funding. To interesting projects, and she has just left a big firm now going out on her own. and She's very sustainably led in the kind of projects that she wants to support entrepreneurs up and coming, and more social impact, more environmentally sustainable, and help the new businesses which are doing good also do well. I'm JJ Walsh, your host in Hiroshima, Japan. And today I have the pleasure of connecting with the amazing Skylar Alexandra Cole. Thank you so much for joining from Tokyo. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to speak with you and everyone watching. That's great. Now, I have been a fan of yours for a little while. I'm a big podcast listener. I love all the interviews you've done so far. Now, I've seen a few on、uh, Scaling Japan yeah, podcast, right? Like talking about being a VC venture capitalist. And then more recently on Unpacking Japan and talking about. Kind of the role of VCs and how it can help community as well as、uh, more sustainable issues. And so that got me really excited to have you on my show and focus more on how getting funding and having that understanding of the funds and, and the support financially that's out there for people with really great ideas in, in with a focus of helping. Our communities and society and the environment, but also having scalable business ideas. Right, exactly. So,、uh, you said that you grew up with a love of Japan. Where did that come from? Yeah, so it's actually a funny story. And before I, I start on that, I just want to say when you reached out to me about talking with you, I was so excited to. Here, kind of the topics that you want to focus on in particular, because those aspects of investing and supporting companies' ideas are what I'm most passionate about and the whole reason why I made this a career. So, really, really happy to be speaking about all those topics today. But to answer your question, yes, so、uh, I have had an interest in Japan since elementary school, maybe even a little bit earlier.、Um, but one kind of key memory or core memory of mine was in elementary school. Uh, my school is very close to the local botanic garden. I'm from Memphis, Tennessee, in the United States. And、um, we would sometimes take field trips、uh, to the botanic garden. And it was actually walking distance, so we could take a lot of very tiny steps and get there. And I really enjoyed the events that they held on different、um, world cultures,、um, including Japan. And so, but the ones about Japan just really,、um, I guess, planted a seed, no pun, no pun intended. And I just thought that the language was beautiful, the art, the culture was so fascinating. And from there, I was able to engage in the culture in various ways growing up,、um, eventually taking Japanese in college, and then learning more about the, um, the, um, the economy as well as looking at the startup ecosystem in particular in ways that, and eventually realizing that there are actually a lot of parallels between Japan. And places like Memphis and places like the Southeast US, where I feel there is this tension between innovation and tradition, but a lot of opportunity to grow and to meet the needs of the people living in these places. That's awesome. Now, you grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, as you said,、uh, the home of Elvis, but of、yes. course, home to many other wonderful things.、Um, but then you went to Stanford, you studied economics,、yes. and then During your time at Stanford, it sounds like you had a really interesting、uh, research study、mm-hmm. about social impact. Can you talk、mm-hmm. to that just a little bit? Absolutely. So, the, actually, my undergraduate research was a huge catalyst for、um, the things I'm doing now and encapsulates a lot of my passions、uh, within investing as well as some other areas、um, that I think we'll be excited to talk about. So,、um, Like, like you mentioned, I studied economics in undergrad and I was focused primarily on health and behavioral economics. 
And during my studies, I was really interested in nutrition and health in particular, as well as food ecosystems. And so I was reading a lot of literature, but eventually found myself quite frustrated with a lot of the methodologies, a lot of the assumptions that were being um, made to talk about various demographics, and in particular about uh, Af the African-American population. In, um, and so I said, well, you know, I think there's a more socially and culturally competent way to go about these topics and to not just conduct the research, but to propose solutions. And so I decided to do something about that myself and ended up doing original research in the Bay Area, as well as in Memphis. Um, I created surveys that I thought were able to better target a lot of the core challenges and just core dynamics that the demographic um, faces and ended up getting some very interesting results. Um, got some funding to do the research and then ended up getting funding to start something related to my, uh, my thesis and my research output. And so that ended up resulting in me starting a Healthier Heritage, which was a social enterprise really dedicated to providing for socially and culturally competent food and health resources. Yeah, that's it. Yay. Amazing. I love this platform. Uh, it's so, so interactive. This is amazing. Um, yeah, founded Health Through Heritage and really through Health Through Health Through Heritage dedicated to providing education, resources, and a marketplace to be able to share um, goods and services and just information that um, people really weren't able to access in um, a very comfortable or accessible way. That's awesome and so necessary. You you hear so much about. Uh, cities in the U.S. and across the world where they don't have access to fresh food. And then some projects trying to do community gardens, for example, but growing culturally relevant foods, which is part of their heritage, like you said. So um, it's healthier, but it's also connected to who they're proud of, who they are and, and where they come from. And I think we can see applications to that uh, in Japan as well, right? Like we need more access to fresh food, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And I would just love to kind of highlight exactly what you said about how it's the health portion is actually also the cultural aspect in being proud of your heritage, proud of your traditions um, and not having to sacrifice or, or really put stigma around that because it's not some other culture, some other um, some other way of eating, that there are ways to be healthy and to honor uh, these, these various cultures. So definitely spot on uh, point. Now, we often say in Japan that we're 20 years behind uh, progress, but I would say when we look at uh, areas in cities which have no access to fresh food, we're, we're kind of seeing a problem which is developing in Japan as well, in the cities, how the number of farmers is on a steep decline. So these kind of uh, strategies for bringing fresh food back to where people live, yeah. this is definitely applicable around Japan and the cities as well, right? Most definitely. And a lot of my work did uh, involve farmers and one supporting them and better accessing um, potential customers and getting closer to city centers, but also supporting them and kind of making sure that their operations are able to continue forward. Uh, so there are a lot of challenges, but also a lot of opportunities to really better integrate, better connect, and better have, I guess, an interdependence between uh, consumers, farmers, and the various stakeholders that are involved in getting uh, something from the ground to your plate. Um, so, and definitely a lot of parallels between Japan and other, and other geographies facing these challenges. And I saw on your website, I think you were talking about uh, being a cheerleader and Whoa. living on a farm. <laughs> was, yeah. that at, was that at Stanford? You were cheerleading? Yeah, I was a cheerleader at Stanford. I cheered for three years. Uh, it's so funny because I never cheered in high school, but I always wanted to. Um, I played tennis and I ran cross country and kind of cheer really didn't fit into those seasons. But I went to Stanford, decided to try some different things and end up joining the team, which was one of the best things I could have ever done. And maybe I'm prefacing something we'll talk about a little later, but one of the just most incredible things about being a cheerleader, of course, it's a lot of fun and you know you get to go to all these games and dance and whatever, but really being able to trust and be trusted in a very real way. And, and for us, a lot of a very physical way, because we were doing stunts and having to support each other. That's one of the most incredible things I've ever experienced and want to continue uh, being able to 
both be able to trust and be trusted in various aspects of life um, in, in a very kind of real and intangible way. Um, so definitely the idea of trust is something that and in that experience became just so clear how important it is and it's, it's continued throughout other aspects of what, I'm, what I've done since. So it not only ties into the idea of fitness and mm-hmm. you are into yoga and doing oh. events which promote fitness and stretching and yes. and loosening those hips, which many of us who work behind a desk, we struggle with, mm-hmm. um, but also being part of a team, team building, trusting each other. These are concepts which I'm sure you've been applying and mentoring and helping people understand as they're talking about successful business as well, right? Most definitely. There's so many aspects of trust are involved in um, starting a business, getting funding for a business um, that I think maybe in some ways, in theory, you can understand, but when it really comes to dedicating yourself to your idea and something that you want to build, it becomes very real, oftentimes very scary um, to have that trust or to try and seek out that trust in other people. So it's a huge, huge aspect that I make sure. And then in my work, I want to help entrepreneurs to kind of face the challenge that, that may come with developing and building this trust and really how it's allocated um, as you kind of grow a business. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just to point out, you've got this interesting uh, event yeah. where you're combining fitness, mm-hmm. fitness league, yes. uh, as part of team building, but also about fitness, I imagine. Tell us about this. Yeah, absolutely. So really the inspiration by Fitness League, which is um, one offering from Startup Co-Creation, which is a startup community uh, founded in Tokyo, but really aims to create um, kind of a central node for internationally minded uh, entrepreneurs, investors, and other stakeholders in related to startups and tech um, in Japan. And so what we're really dedicated to is providing the resources, information, any tools that these types of entrepreneurs or individuals may need to really thrive and find their own version of success uh, within startups and tech in Japan. Um, and so we really want to support not just people in Japan, but those who are interested and wanting to engage in Japan. And so Fitness League uh, is one offering that I was really inspired by um, really a lot of this idea of trust and I'll, I'll throw out a term to kind of get it out there, but the idea of social capital and and what, what exactly that means and how to build it. Um, and when you're in kind of in the startup realm. And so sometimes you may, or a lot of times you're meeting with people, trying to build connections, trying to build relationships. But even when you're talking about business, it's not always all about business. You are people interacting with each other, humans interacting with each other at the end of the day. And there's other things that you can connect on. And so really the idea of Fitness League was to be able to bring people together, um, related people together, but have a reason to connect that's not so just solely focused on what we're trying to build and what our goals are for our business or investing. And so being able to get together, whether it's for yoga, for a hike or for another activity, um, that was really why we decided to found Fitness League and yeah, just do fun activities that kind of allow people to connect and see people as humans, even as we pursue our goals. Now that makes a lot of sense uh, for anybody who's worked in Japan for a long time and worked at different companies or businesses. You know that once a year they usually do these team building trips uh, where they try to connect with each other on a more personal level, right. as well as making those bonds, which then make them a more effective business. Right. So this kind of strategy, having two parts of the relationship, is really clever. Yeah, so we have we have a lot of fun, and really, I think that um, it's also an opportunity for people who are interested um, to kind of, you know, if they have want to play basketball, so a community member can start that, and and you know, allow some agency in what happens in the community. So definitely, really happy to have this be a component and getting people together. That's awesome. Sounds really interesting. Um, and then we, so we finished your time in Stanford. You were cheerleading uh, your passion for yoga and how that's led to other projects and connections with team building as well as uh, supporting entrepreneurs. Um, you came to Tokyo and you studied public policy. Yeah, I sure how did. Is that, I mean, that's such an important thing to understand 
if you are being a mentor or helping entrepreneurs to have successful businesses, right? Mm -hmm. So I'll actually take a step back um, to health or heritage because actually my experience, while I was loving the work I was doing uh, in the primarily Memphis and really excited by the impact, I felt motivated or felt that there was even more I wanted to do. And even though you know we were having great success make, have, being impactful, I looked around and saw so many people and ideas that were already kind of in, in progress or people trying to kind of execute on these ideas. And I thought that, well, if these people, these ideas had the right financial, social, human capital, then they'd already be able to at least make even more progress towards solving other uh, problems that they're tackling. And so that's when I decided for myself that, oh, actually, I want to solve this idea, this challenge of capital, this financial, social, human capital, and um, be able to support these diverse ideas, these diverse people who have really clear um, pointed solutions for a lot of the challenges that I'm also personally passionate about solving uh, and building for myself. And so kind of during that, I thought, well, how do I want to build this capital allocators toolkit? And so for me, that really involves kind of two pillars. One is working directly with companies, directly with people, directly with teams. I think just personality wise, I love working with teams. I love taking action and seeing result and making things work. Um, but also I'm really passionate about systems change and positive systemic change. And for me, one way to accomplish that is through policy. And so I said, moving forward, I want to be able to build these two pillars to solving uh, and to really contributing to this idea of capital allocation. And so that's how I ended up uh, studying public policy. Uh, I went to the University of Tokyo and basically studied um, strategies for, um, for I guess, public-private public, public -private partnerships um, and supporting, yay. Uh, oh yeah, oh yes, so the Master of Public Policy at the University of Tokyo, amazing program. Um, uh, and so, and how to better um, fund uh, both SMEs and startups, so social, uh, small and medium enterprises, as well as startups. Uh, part of my research looked at revenue-based investing, which is another uh, strategy for investing in startups with many certain uh, requirements or have uh, certain characteristics, um, but also looking at how to better uh, couple uh, financial support and kind of technical support or mentoring or whatever term you want to use. And because I think that while I'm in venture capital, um, that's just one way of kind of combining these two aspects. But I think there's room to expand how we provide really high quality support with really high quality, um, knowledgeable uh, fi financing. Um, so that's what I studied, uh, employing uh, both public policy and economics uh, while I was at Todai. Wow, and it, it's so important to have knowledge based on both sides, right? Um, quite a lot of you know entrepreneurs out there changing the world, doing good things like the ocean cleanup. One of the big uh, complaints that people have is we don't need people just cleaning it up. We need systemic change. We need to turn yes. off the tap. Well, that's true, but who's actually out there making it happen, right? Systemic change takes a long time. Systemic change is slow, right? So yeah. we need both, right? Most definitely, 100%, 100%. I think sometimes it can be, you know, maybe it's not quite as appealing or not quite as exciting, but I think a combined effort, um, things that could happen more immediately with this longer term view is just absolutely necessary. Yeah. And we have uh, Louise Poppy joining from New Zealand. Thanks so much for joining, Louise. Now, Louise and I have chatted before. She does a lot of tours, but also I've been so impressed with uh, gender equality initiatives in New Zealand. There's a lot about sustainable agriculture, sustainable mm -hmm. business in New Zealand we can learn from. Um, so perfect timing for you to join, Louise. <laughs> Thank you for joining. Now, uh, so you studied public policy and then you were working uh, with Incubate Fund for a long time. Now, looking at the work that you were doing with Incubate Fund, I was really impressed. And now this, I've heard they started in 2010, mm -hmm. uh, but they have so many great events um, and training as well as 
uh, doing VC and pitch contests and things. And I'm so excited to see women represented, right? And this focus on training and mentoring women to help with that huge gender gap that we're struggling with in Japan, right? Right, most definitely. So like you said, I, I was at Incubate Fund for a few for a while um, and definitely internally as well as in collaboration with other uh, local um, groups are really working towards supporting women in venture capital as well as uh, female entrepreneurs. Uh, my team in particular has been really supportive of supporting female venture capitalists. Uh, my team uh, was all, all the associates were female, which I think is really rare. Um, they're, well, the overall, the, the kind of venture ecosystem is still relatively small. Um, it's having so many women in one place was just really amazing and really strong example of what work is being done to really support um, female entrepreneurs and female venture capitalists. Um, in addition to the work at Incubate Fund, which has started various um, groups to support not just internal employees, but um, uh, the employees of portfolio companies. Um, also work very closely with an organization, Women in Venture Capital, uh, which is uh, two amazing venture capitalists uh, and friends. Um, we really found it to create this safe space for female venture capitalists in um, primarily Tokyo, but, but definitely um, wider in Japan uh, with networking, community building, um, Geoflow, which is kind of uh, the potential investment opportunities that you can invest in as an entrepreneur um, and really just creating a safe place and a cohesive place for um, women in venture capital to meet and, and share resources. That's awesome. It's so, I mean, I, I often wonder why people choose Tokyo. I'm, I'm based in Hiroshima, a smaller city, so I have the nature around me. But it's so obvious that if you want to be there where all the business is happening and to have that huge influence and be able to meet so many other entrepreneurs and people who are doing new things, really, you have to be in Tokyo right now. Isn't that right? Yes. So I think logistically, just the highest concentration of people in, in kind of startups and, and venture and tech is in Tokyo. But I will say that there's a, a lot happening outside of Tokyo in various cities. Um, and I think depending on what you want to do, kind of your focus area, there may be unique opportunities for you in these other cities outside of Tokyo. Um, so while I will admit that for now, Tokyo's I think still very much a place to be if you have to pick one place to kind of accelerate your business building. But depending on kind of what grants, what industry you're in, other places in Japan may be a, a better fit um, more immediately. I have heard that. I've heard from entrepreneurs in Fukuoka, mm -hmm. entrepreneurs in Kansai, yes. um, that they're getting a lot of support. And even entrepreneurs in Hiroshima, mm -hmm. I've heard hints of it. So it is coming to smaller cities as well. But I, I often connect with amazing people doing amazing things around Japan. They say, oh, let's meet for coffee. Oh, what? You're not in Tokyo? Mm -hmm. you know, like, so it's much harder to connect. Yes, yes, most definitely. So come come to Tokyo sometimes if you're not in a <laughs> base there. It's not too far away. Yeah, it's it's a five hour train ride. So yeah, <laughs> not too bad. Um, now, Tyler, in your profile for your website, uh, you talk about uh, being a ecosystem builder. Mm -hmm. So you talked about policy. You talked a little bit about um, being a VC. We'll talk more about that. But could you just give us a, a little introduction of what does it mean to be an ecosystem builder? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think there can be maybe a bit of confusion of what is defined as an ecosystem, first and foremost. And so for me, that really involves um, the people, the places, the resources, the information that are concentrated in a defined geography. Um, it doesn't always have to be a physical geography. Maybe we're talking about a digital um, digital space, but it's really all these people and components that work together to have some certain outcome. And so let's just take the Tokyo startup ecosystem. It's all the people, the places, the resources, the government 
the academic, the private, the all, all the different entities that work together to support kind of startups and whatever metrics that you're trying to use um, and move that forward. So that's kind of what I can say is maybe a working definition of what is an ecosystem or what I mean when I say ecosystem in this case. And so what I mean as an ecosystem builder, it's really leveraging what I feel is one of my strongest superpowers is connecting the dots. Um, so connecting dots between people, between ideas, um, between organizations, and really making sure that these connections um, are not just synergistic, but maximally synergistic in kind of the pursuit of whatever aims are most um, relevant in the moment. And so as an ecosystem builder, I see um, that role kind of looks like a few different things. Um, like I mentioned, I, I'm a co-founder of Startup Co-Creation, which is kind of one community group that really aims to not just support um, our members, which we have about almost 450 members in our Slack group um, right now, but really working across communities to make sure that information flows are shared, opportunities are shared, um, and that we can all kind of benefit from the work that we're doing and really unlock silos um, between people and information, which I do feel is a, a major challenge in a lot of places, but definitely in Tokyo and definitely in Japan as well, that you know, there's people who are doing exciting, interesting things and relevant things to what you're doing. But sometimes while they may be close to proximity, um, you still aren't aware that they are doing those exciting things. So as an ecosystem builder, really looking to make these connections, but also really contribute to supporting resources that make um, the process of starting a company or investing in a company or coming and starting whatever you're doing in Japan a little bit easier. That's so important to understand, I think, um, how, and this connects to your work as a VC as well, how you describe it as helping build ideas mm -hmm. and supporting the founder or supporting the person making the ideas. And it can start pretty early on and you can help them make connections along the way, kind of like a mentorship, mm -hmm. which I think is kind of different from how most of us think about VCs and kind of this cold, you have to have your tech company supported, mm -hmm. you know, like we don't think of it as a human side mm -hmm. of a VC. So that's nice yeah. to hear. Yeah. I, I like to say exactly that like venture capitalists are humans too. Uh, it may seem like you said, like scary financial people. What is your business doing? X, Y, and Z. What are these metrics? Da 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 da. But we're humans. We get hungry. We're imperfect. We have our own goals and aspirations and all of those things and incentives. And so I think as an entrepreneur, first and foremost, it's really important to understand that. And that while it still may be intimidating to approach a venture capital venture capitalist, we're still humans at the end of the day. Um, and I think that kind of one, maybe one of my biggest pieces of advice, and if you're interested in when you're raising from a venture capitalist, is to start building those relationships as soon as possible. Um, don't wait until like, oh, I need money yesterday. <laughs> but really, as soon as you're able, start building these connections. If there's events or spaces where you can start to meet casually, start to build those relationships. And your not just your relationship with the Mr. Capital that you're interested in maybe seeking investment, but your reputation amongst other stakeholders will really start to speak for you and at least and support you in kind of whatever your fundraising goals are. So really that relationship building is key, especially at the early stages. It's really a, a people business. Um, there's just not as much data, there's not as many financials to really review. So it's really a lot, a huge portion is really about people. That's so important to remember. And I've interviewed quite a lot of entrepreneurs uh, who are focused on making the world a better place. We need you guys. Um, but even when I talked to like Robin Lewis, uh, when they were first starting my Mizu, they didn't really have a forecast of how it was going to make money. They just had a great idea. And now, years later, they have found revenue streams and they've gotten so much support, probably from VCs like you. So you don't have to show that it's a profitable business. You, you really need to show your passion and a great idea to get started. Is that right? Yeah. So I think there are a few things that venture capitalists look for in an early company. 
Um, and I think one, like I mentioned, it's the people. Two, it's a product vision. Um, so let's say you have maybe, maybe not even an MVP or, or minimal viable product. Maybe you just kind of have a, an idea of what you're wanting to build. But really, how strong is the vision? How impactful is the vision? How do you share that? Are all things that are really um, important when I say we look at a product vision. Um, and where do you want to take this? What, what is the change you want to see in the world? Uh, venture capitalists also look at the team. So one term that we often use is founder market fit. So how, um, for the founders in particular, how suited are you towards the problem and the solution that you're building? Do you have some lived experience? Do you have some educational background, some professional background that allows you to be the best person to uh, execute on your idea? But more so, so, but in addition to those things, um, really for a venture backable business, um, you want at least two things, defensibility, which means how can you protect your idea? How can you protect your business and prevent other people from easily replicating it? Um, and two, we look at scalability. So one aspect that keeps, that separates uh, an SME from a startup is this idea of scalability. And so that basically means, can you grow exponentially, which is kind of, let's say an X squared, if we haven't taken our calculus or algebra in a while, versus let's say a 2X growth. And so that's extremely important because uh, for the incentives and in venture capital, you need a company that's able to scale and scale quickly to make the kind of fundraising, the funding structure kind of make sense for all parties. Um, and so you can have an incredible business, a worthwhile business, an impactful, world-changing business, but it may not be a startup. It may not be uh, exponent, able to scale exponentially, and that's okay. <laughs> Something that I, I really want to uh, get across to entrepreneurs is that even if your company isn't venture backable by being scalable, uh, exp able to grow exponentially and defensible, um, you can still have an amazing business, and that doesn't lessen the value, the worth of your idea or what you're doing. And since the growth of venture capital in the past 30 years, there has been kind of, I think, um, this put, putting of um, venture capital and startups on a pedestal. But um, that, that's just one way to run a business. That's just one way to fund a business. There are other ways to support your idea and grow worthwhile and, and invest in worthwhile businesses. Um, but that's kind of briefly some things that venture capitalists look for um, in a company, um, product vision, team, um, also the market. Um, so something, not necessarily the size of the market, is all, it's not always the most important thing, but um, because I see a lot of pitches that are like, we have this X large market that's expected to be this size in whatever year. And that information is all well and good, but it's really more about kind of, are you able to capture a piece of that market and are the um, kind of market trends in your favor for what you're trying to do? Um, so those are things you look for, product, team, market, um, and scalability and defensibility, um, at least starting out. Um, but I think something that we've, we're starting to talk about um, right now is kind of, you know, you, you need a, a great idea, but you also, especially for, I think, us more socially minded entrepreneurs and, and those that want to have this impact, something that I've really experienced personally, but also in my support of entrepreneurs that aim to have this impact and have a strong vision for what they want the future to look like. Um, is at the end of the day, you, you want to have this impact, but you have to have a solid business as well. And those things don't have to be mutually exclusive. Uh, one motivation for me for coming into venture capital um, versus another funding strategy initially was because I felt a bit of a kind of this idea that doing well financially and doing good for the world kind of for mutually exclusive ideas, but that's definitely not the case. Uh, so as you're building a company that is more socially minded, even though I think sometimes it can be difficult to kind of focus on, okay, what are the actual, what are the unit economics? What, are, what is my business model? What's my operating model? All those things. That that is just a tool for you to be able to have the impact that you want to have. And you need both of these things to be successful. Those are all really important points to consider. And I'm so glad to hear you say over and over 
that you can do well and you can do good yes. together. Yes. Such key point there. Um, but even if you have a great idea that's going to help the world, you do need to have a viable business. And that idea of having good business strategy, as well as a great idea, as well as passion, that's where talking to people like you can really help, right? Yes, most definitely. And I think something that can also be difficult when I'm trying to have these conversations is that idea of trust and trusting something, someone with your idea, trusting someone to learn about what you're doing and provide advice. Um, a lot of entrepreneurs that work, it's a decent number of entrepreneurs that I work with, you know, have this question of, oh, I don't want to share what I'm doing. I don't want someone to take it from me. I don't want, you know, X, Y, or Z to happen, which I completely understand. It's scary to share kind of things you're most passionate about. Um, but I think in your pursuit of finding people to um, share your idea, coming back to this idea of relationship building, maybe you don't share exactly what you're doing up front, but you start to talk to people to start to connect, start to talk about maybe the space or the industry. And then through these interactions, slowly decide that, oh, this is someone I can actually trust. This is someone I can share. Um, and be open to kind of kind of coming out of your comfort zone just a little bit in that in that perspective. But it is really challenging um, to be able to allocate and to uh, allocate this this trust. You can't. You you need other people to support you, um, and being open to kind of that process of opening up will be very helpful in your journey. I think that's so important to remember that it's a long process, right? And you need lots of expert advice along the way if you're going to have a successful business. Uh, you mentioned briefly that there are other avenues for for people. It might not fit your business model to go with a VC, you might want to do crowdfunding, for example. Right. So there's multiple funding strategies. Um, this is existing, but also those that I think are still in development, those that you know, I'm working to kind of figure out what other ways we can fill funding gaps for worthwhile ideas and teams and businesses. Um, but to talk first to some of the existing um existing opportunities like like you mentioned there's crowdfunding um which takes a few different um could take a few different uh strategies there's crowdfunding that basically is more donation based or you get um maybe you provide some sort of item or gift um to your donors there's also equity crowdfunding which um investors in your in your campaign will will eventually get some stake in your company um and that, that's one route. Um, the crowdfunding actually can fit a wide range of business models. So whether you are a startup, an SME, maybe you have a, a game that you're looking to develop. Um, those are all options. Um, crowdfunding for sure. And, and I think I want, I want to preface a discussion of um, these different funding strategies that one isn't necessarily easier than the other. There are pros and cons to all funding strategies. And it's really... Um, up to you and up to your team to decide which which ones are a best fit for you um, at any given time. Um, and so, while venture capital can seem like oh this is taking a long time to build these relationships to go through the process, crowdfunding can also can take some time. It's I, I think fundraising is a full time almost a full time job in and of itself. Um, and so, really being able to set up a campaign to gain support um, really it's an involved process. Um, even though there are different requirements and long-term expectations versus venture capital. Um, there's also a funding strategy called revenue-based investing or revenue-based financing, which I'm particularly bullish about. Um, but it's basically a strategy that there, there are a few different um, versions and depending on the firm that you work with, they may have a slightly different strategy, but it's basically um, tying in um, you have some some investment that's agreed upon up front and the you basically pay back the investment based off of your revenue for your company. So you have to be able to show some sort of monthly reoccurring revenue, MRR, or annual reoccurring revenue, ARR, depending on the, the fund or the depending on the entity that's providing this revenue-based investing. Um, but one, I, I do think that this is very entrepreneur-centric uh, approach because um, 
in in this form of financing, you pay back your principal and any interest based off of how much income you have. So when you have um, higher revenue, then you pay back a little bit more. And when you have lower, you pay back less. So usually the terms are very transparent and you um, pay back um, the investment amount, any interest um, based off of your revenue. Um, and I think that that is an interesting strategy because it doesn't necessarily mean that versus venture capital, you have to have these expectations of scaling, continue to scale at a certain rate through the lifetime of the company. But basically, as long as you can show some sort of revenue, um, then that may be a candidate, um, depending, of course, depending on the particular fund and what type of companies they're interested in uh, investing in. Um, so transparent terms and flexible payback. So that's one option. Um, in Japan, there's one company that uh, supports revenue-based investing for early stage companies. And I think one that is for later stage or growth stage companies. So this this funding strategy is more, um, more widespread in the US and Europe. Um, as well as I think, I think there's quite a few firms in India and Southeast Asia, but hopefully there's will be more options in Japan as well moving forward. But those are just a few funding options. Um, there's grants, there's loans, there's um, other strategies. But something I'm really excited about um, myself and, and other like-minded people are really asking this question of how can we better tailor capital to the types of ideas, companies, and projects that are out here doing great work. And so definitely uh, look forward to more updates from me. And I'd love to share more information about uh, what we come up with as far as funding a, a broader range of ideas and projects. That's so important. And I'm so excited to see what you're doing this year because you're kind of going into a new project, a new type of, of work. Uh, can't wait to hear more about that. Um, but I think what you just said is so important about uh, if you do have a great idea, you are an entrepreneur, you are trying to make things happen. You're not alone. You know, just reaching out and talking to someone like you can really help you get a clearer vision of what you need to do to get along the way, to get to the next step that you need to be at, um, at different stages of where your business idea is, it's always worth reaching out, right? Yes, most definitely. It's so important to reach out and have regular conversations because like you said, things will keep changing, will come at, get to a certain stage and then the landscape will look different. Like where, where do I go from here? But something that we try and do with a startup co-creation, a CC, but also just as uh, as a venture capitalist working with entrepreneurs, um, is to connect with people who are either a couple steps ahead of you or maybe a step ahead of you, um, and, or even, even peers who are doing the same thing that you're doing, because then you can exchange ideas. You can recognize that, oh, other people have the same problem, and we can figure it out and support each other, or this person is two steps ahead, they've done X, Y, and Z, maybe that will work for me. And so that's something that, especially in the, the Japanese startup ecosystem, especially for kind of more international or for English speakers, we're really looking to um, increase the concentration um, of people who can have these conversations and the spaces where these conversations can happen. Um, because in places like, let's say, SF or San Francisco or New York in the US, um, or maybe, you know, London and Paris, they're already higher greater concentrations of these types of conversations and places to have these conversations, but something through SEC and just in general with my uh, primary role, really looking to create, continue to create spaces um, where these conversations can happen outside of maybe your, your team or your venture capitalist, um, but having kind of these third spaces where these conversations can happen. Now, are you seeing, cause we, in tourism, we see a lot of positive movement for sustainability coming from the open borders and international customers coming in asking for plant-based options, for example. They don't want the plastic bags, right? So they're they're coming from areas where there's kind of a, a higher or a more usual understanding of mm -hmm. sustainable practices. Are you noticing as well for funding a lot of international interest in Japan for getting things which are maybe more social impact or more sustainably led uh, in terms of funding as well from international? Yeah, so I think that there's a lot of increasing interest in, in Japan and startups in kind of innovating. Um, I think one, one challenge um, that I see is that it can be hard for 
of international investors or stakeholders to really plug into where a lot of this great work is happening in Japan. So that's something I'm really looking to facilitate and bridge because there's great people doing exciting work in Japan um, and people who are interested from abroad. And so really creating this bridge and connecting the dots is something that's particularly important to me. And I think you're right as far, definitely from a customer perspective, but also from kind of this investor perspective, um, I think there's there will be, continue to be more of kind of an international influence in what drives what's most important, what's seen as important in Japan. Um, I see this initially in kind of the expectations for doing business, um, having a high standard, being competitive, and this idea of being globally competitive from Japan. Um, so I think that there's a lot of great work that can happen within the borders within the domestic market, but there's so much more opportunity if kind of Japan overall is more open to its ideas, these these kind of best practices from abroad. So definitely this idea of being open to and adopting best practices, whether it's from investing, um, uh, business building to sustainability practices, um, are all things that I think will continue to have a greater push from the outside. Um, and hopefully change, change some things and work collaboratively, collab will be a collaborative effort with kind of the things that are already going well in Japan. That's awesome because we know that it's so necessary and so needed, but sometimes the international influence, because they're already doing it, it gives yes. that great benchmark or that great, uh, this is best strategy kind of thing. Yes, most definitely, most definitely. Now, um, this might be a good time uh, to talk a little bit more about social capital. Yeah, absolutely. So definitely, I mean, this is probably, well, I specialize in the financial and financial capital and the fundraising, the financing aspect of it. To me, social capital really underlies all the interactions and even the ability to allocate financial capital. And we've talked a lot today already about trust, uh, which is kind of one of the components of social capital. And I think along with that, um, there's so many components of social capital. Um, and I think part of it is also kind of your baseline willingness to believe in and support someone else. Um, so for example, you know, maybe I want to invest in company A found with, with, with a founder and, or let, let me even take a step back. If I'm, if I'm as an investor, maybe I'm more prone to investing in certain ideas or certain industries or certain things that I'm most comfortable in that I, as a baseline, feel more comfortable investing and supporting. But to me, that mindset, um, while it can be helpful and kind of this idea of pattern matching and recognizing things that you're already familiar with, can, al can also be really um, harmful and really exclude a lot of people, ideas, a lot of industries, um, a lot of problems from being invested in and supported. And so why social capital is so important in this idea of kind of where your baseline understanding and willingness to support comes in is that you don't have to write a check to believe in someone. And so kind of being able to take and recognize and take control of this non-monetary power, this non-monetary capital and saying, well, how do we start here? And how do we use this to make sure that more ideas, uh, more people, more teams are being invested in that are doing really great work? Um, so I think that you know, let's just take um, kind of maybe environmental or, or social, um, more socially minded um, ideas or projects. If my baseline is to say that, oh, these companies aren't going to scale to a certain um, extent or or these don't have strong business models, that already precludes me or makes sets me up to not be able to really recognize and see the power in what could be a great idea or a great business. And so what I'm one thing I'm really passionate about and looking forward to is how to better target this aspect of social capital before any funding is being distributed. Um, and so that's I guess that's maybe we can talk about it in terms of industry, in terms of demographics, in terms of supporting women, what have you, but really making sure that 
we recognize just how powerful this is in uh, supporting ideas and people. Absolutely. And even on the very basic level of just liking, commenting, sharing, yeah. you know, yeah. this, this is not a financial burden on anybody. This is something we can do in the click of a button, but it really helps support people who are putting themselves out there and trying to make great ideas happen, right? Mm, absolutely. Because there's so many things, and I think that, like you said, liking, sharing, those things don't don't take anything from you. But I think there can sometimes be a hesitation to want to show support even in those ways. And it's something to really question and think about kind of why is there sometimes that hesitation? Or maybe if it's if you're supporting an idea or supporting a business, another way that this manifests is how much tolerance do you have for mistakes, for potential failure? And this is something that's especially important in venture capital and startups. Because especially in, in the U.S., um, there's this idea of, you know, failure, of, of failing fast. Um, so this idea of failure isn't an end. It's a way to learn. But that being said, some groups and ideas don't really get that bandwidth to make mistakes and to, quote unquote, fail. And so in a space that is supposedly set up on having these feedback loops in, in this idea of iteration, if my tolerance for someone making a mistake is far less than someone else, then that sets sets these entrepreneurship teams up for very different trajectories and their ability to kind of get resources for whatever they're doing. And manifest from liking, from sharing, from will tolerance for mistakes and tolerance to support and see the potential, see the learning abilities and adaptability of entrepreneurs to whether what industries and what topics are are seen as worthwhile to invest in. There's so many ways this idea of social capital manifests. Um, and I think there's kind of immediate things we can do. Um, we can start to think about implicit bias or, or even explicit bias, but also in the structures and processes that we have for um, supporting ideas and investing in and viewing ideas. What ways can we start to build better practices and policies so that our own human biases and our own even as we maybe attempt to grow and to change, how can we make sure that um, that at least some of the processes help to make up for kind of our our human deficiencies? Yeah, I see uh, things that hold us back. For example, uh, jealousy <laughs> is one. Like it's a very, of course, it's a human emotion. But you know, you're you see somebody doing better than you you want to be there, and they're already doing it. So I'm not going to share what they're doing because I'm like kind of jealous. Just get over that and be like, wow, what they're doing is amazing. I'm going to promote what they're doing. And then it comes back tenfold to you. And people appreciate you sharing without personal benefit. And then when you do something, you get the support, right? Most definitely. I agree 100%. I think something I like to call the karmic cap table which is not necessarily the financial, uh, the a cap table is what's used in venture capital. Can I see who your investors are, how much they have and whatever, how much investment they have, so percentage, all that. Um, but really the idea of, like you said, kind of being positive, sharing, having this gift forward mentality, um, being able to be excited for others, other, other people doing great things, I think comes back to you in ways that maybe it's not always easy to, point to or or connect but really um just karmically speaking i think that's the way to go and has a way of bringing very positive things back to you for sure i love your positive energy it's so nice to talk to someone who has so much influence on funding but is also such a mentor and i think many of us i'm a big fan of shark tank it's fun to watch right it's entertaining it's really fun to watch um, but you see how these angel investors, they are also acting as mentors. Mm -hmm. They take on projects that they personally have expertise in mm -hmm. and they see it over many years until it's it's gaining traction, right? Right, absolutely. And I, I really appreciate you saying that because um, for me, I really want to increase transparency and really increase the ability for people to understand what tools are, are available. And if they are helpful, be able to use them and access them to their full ability. Because unfortunately, they're still, um, the, the venture capital industry is still very opaque. 
and unfortunately opaque by design in, in a lot of ways, but moving forward, wanting to continue to be an advocate, um, to be a mentor, um, and to really share tools and resources that can be, can be helpful. That's wonderful. We just have about five more minutes. Uh, is there anything coming up for you this year? What are you excited about? Uh, what things are kind of on your radar that you're hoping to see develop more? Yeah, so a lot of things I'm really excited about. Um, and kind of we mentioned earlier that I'll be, uh, I'm starting a new role. And part of that will be um, still, still investing, still supporting businesses, but also having a greater policy component and a greater cross-border component. Um, something that I think is a superpower and I see in a lot of other people, this idea of being able to have dynamic experiences across geographies. And I think, unfortunately, um, and, and not necessarily always unfortunately, but uh, especially in the area of early stage investing, um, it can be very ge uh, geography uh, specific. But I really see an opportunity in supporting people that have these dynamic relationships and ability to succeed across geographies and being able to support them in that. So whether that's a business, whether that's a project, um, whether that's policy, and really seeing how uh, we can better support um, uh, interests across the border. Those are all things I'll be working on this year and definitely we'll have some exciting updates in the next uh, month or two. So please look, be on the lookout for that. Um, additionally, um, at, outside of but, but connected to um, my work in, as an investor um, and supporting companies is continuing to really show and weld uh, wellness and mobility with um, your, your professional work. Um, so I think that um, those things are mutually exclusive and they do benefit each other. So if you're taking care of yourself, your body, your mind, your spirit, what, what, whatever you believe in, um, I think that definitely helps your professional life as well. So um, through Honor Your Flex, which is my um, kind of mobility and movement brand, we'll continue. To, yes, that's me. Yay. Uh, we'll be continuing to support um, uh, entrepreneurs, tech people, uh, corp uh, people working in corporate to find a movement that fits into their lives and supports the great work that they're doing. So Really excited on a couple of fronts um, and definitely hope to talk soon about those things in more detail. I love your philosophy page here. Strength yes. is not the opposite of flexibility. They go hand yes. in hand. Yes, absolutely. That's actually that's one of my favorite uh, <laughs> favorite posts and just um, ideas because I think um, even just looking at, just strictly looking at it from a, a fitness perspective, there definitely sometimes feels like a trade-off between getting strong, making products in the gym and flexibility. But like I said, they go hand in hand and support each other and can can benefit each other um, and be worked on um, even, you, you can work on your flexibility and strength in, at, at the same time. And I think that that applies to just different aspects of life and whether it's kind of going back to the idea of doing good and doing well, those things are mutually exclusive and we really just have to be intentional about um, our passion to do to connect these worlds and to make progress. So that's really an underlying theme of, of a lot of what I'm doing is that you know these things actually connect and work well together. We just have to recognize and being willing to take steps forward to um, make it happen. So definitely, thank you so much for sharing that. I'm glad we could we can make that connection. Yeah, fantastic. And I, to be honest, flexibility is one of the weaknesses I think Japanese businesses have. Is It's one of the strengths of American business. Maybe we're lacking in efficiency. Right. But being able to see the customer on a case-by-case -case basis, being able to create policies on a case-by-case -case basis, it's kind of a weakness in Japan right now. So we need physical but also mental flexibility, right? Yes, you're... 200, 300, 400, 500% correct on that. And I think just a greater theme of that, you know, each geography, each person has their own strengths and areas of improvement. But I think that we shouldn't see our areas of improvement as negative or bad, just ways to see how can we learn, how can we exchange with other people, other geographies, and use what we are uniquely able to do 
and enhance that through learnings and exchange with other people, other walks of life, other geography. So whether it's your physical training or in your business life, um, being open to kind of both those things, seeing it as an opportunity to, be, to grow uniquely uh, is, is, I think, extremely important. Well, thank you so much, Skylar. So much great insight here. And also, I'm just so happy you're in Japan because you're such a positive force, but also you're supporting so many people with great ideas who are trying to do good in business as well as in their life and for the planet. So thank you so much for all you do. No, it's my absolute pleasure. Um, and anyone listening, feel free to reach out if you have any questions, want any support always happy to support and, and make connections to see if someone who can be helpful to you as well. Awesome. And good luck in this year of the dragon. Yes. We're excited to hear all your new projects. Yay. Thank you so much. And look forward to giving some updates. Fantastic. Thanks everyone for joining. See you again next time. Thanks Skylar. Way out, he'll shout to